0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
1: Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
0: Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend.
1: Huh? You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to
0: Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer.
1: It's
2: hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelphelp.com slash history extra.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Starting off as a local argument between two men and their vicar, the Western Rising of 1549 went on to become what Professor Mark Stoyle calls the most catastrophic event to occur in Devon and Cornwall between the Black Death and the Civil War. Huge swathes of ordinary English people besieged a regional capital and fought in savage battles against the Crown, facing an enormous number of casualties. Speaking to Emily Briffitt, Mark traces the efforts of thousands of men and women who rose
3: up to defend their faith. Hello, Mark. It's really lovely to be chatting to you today.
2: Hello, Emily. Thanks.
3: Today, we're going to be talking about your new book, Uh, Murderous Midsummer, which is all about the Western Rising of 1549. What inspired you to write this book?
2: Well, it, it's a book that's that's really close to my heart, um, because I actually grew up in the Mid-Devon countryside, the so rural Mid-Devon, which is where this rebellion began. So it's sort of been around me virtually all of my life. I mean, I sort of, I always seem to have known about it. And even as a teenager, I'd become interested in it. So it's something I really have been thinking about and researching for, you know, most of my adult life in many ways.
3: So can you briefly introduce us to this western rising then
2: well essentially it's a kind of it's a protest by ordinary people in the west of england uh, against um, the religious reforms that were brought in um, by the government of the boy king edward the so henry the had obviously sort of brought about his own king's reformation during the 1530s and early 1540s but it was a relatively moderate and restrained kind of reformation, it still um, retained a lot of things that, you know, were not that far away, if you like, from the old sort of Catholic rituals and ceremonies. But with the arrival of Edward on the throne in 1547, all of that changed and a genuine religious revolution was unleashed on the kingdom when that government began to move to full-on Protestantism. And that's what really is the most important thing, I think, in causing this rising in the West Country.
3: So I'd really like to delve into the motivations of the rebels in a moment, but I think there's one point we probably need to talk about first, in that some of our listeners might know this rebellion, this rising by the name of the prayer book rebellion. Why is there two names for this and what might the rebels themselves have called it? Or the people at the time?
2: I mean, to be honest, it's got lots of different names. Um, I mean, the Prayer Book Rebellion is the name that it's most widely known about by today. And when I was growing up, that's what everybody called it. So, you know, I was introduced to it as the Prayer Book Rebellion. And I mean, I've called it that myself for many years. But it was only over time um, that I realised that in some ways... um, by calling it a rebellion, that's using in a, a, quite a pejorative term in some ways. The actual protesters themselves wouldn't have seen themselves as rebels. And also, while I was writing this book, it suddenly dawned on me that that term, prayer but rebellion, is a relatively modern invention, I think. And the earliest reference I found to it is about the time of the First World War um so to go back to your original question you know what would people have called it at the time i think they would have called it very different things the government obviously called it a rebellion and they called the protesters rebels um ordinary people in the west country called it something rather different which was the commotion which is a really interesting term which sort of it it, it acknowledges the fact that there's a huge amount of trouble and strife so it's quite a, a neutral term what the actual protesters themselves would have called it We really don't know um, because we have so little from them um, that we don't know exactly what they would have called it. But it would have probably been, you know, some sort of um, something along the lines of a petition or, you know, uh, they were petitioners or protesters. That's probably how they saw themselves.
3: So do we see that a shift from maybe them being seen as protesters to rebels
2: at any point? Yes, I think we do. I think initially, I mean, it it was quite common for um, ordinary people to complain about things at this time. Normally, they would go and complain to their sort of social betters, as it were, ask for some sort of redress. Um, They could also do this by, you know, putting forward some kind of list of grievances. Um, I think what happens really with the Western Rebellion is, is it begins as a kind of a minor protest, and then as the rebels actually, or the protesters, I should call them at this stage, as they actually begin to to take up arms, then um, the government and the loyalists who actually hold true to the government, they begin to refer to them as rebels. And of course, once you use that term, it's a very dangerous word. They are rebels against the crown. That makes them traitors. That makes them um, susceptible to the harshest punishments. So it's a real sort of escalation of language.
3: What motivated the people of Cornwall? and Devon to revolt, to rebel?
2: Well, there are lots of different things going on here, but essentially, um, ever since the 1530s, Henry VIII first has been moving in a, you know, a very sort of radical direction with his religious reforms. So there's the attack on the power of the church, there's the dissolution of the monasteries and all of the huge amount of chaos that causes. There'd been a lot of protest about this in other parts of England. In 1536, there'd actually been, you know, a major protest called the Pilgrimage of Grace in the north. That had been, Henry VIII had managed to defuse that and then savagely punish the leaders. And I think... All of the things that had happened in Henry's reign had already created great unease in West Country society. And then, under Edward, the pace of religious reform accelerates. And I think that was the prime factor in causing the revolt. The trigger for this, really, is the introduction in the year 1549 of a new prayer book in English, which replaced the old Latin rites, which had been used before, the old Latin mass. And that, for many people, this seems to have been the sort of the final straw. You know, all of these changes have come in. And now uh, we've had this new prayer book foisted on us. And it's that that's actually the trigger. Hola.
0: Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede
1: hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije.
0: You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer
2: for the first demonstration that begins this whole series of protests. And that takes place in a very remote village in the heart of Devon called Samford Courtney. The new book is is brought in. The, the parishioners are sort of faced with it, but they don't like it. And after having heard it once, they confront their vicar um, at the church and say they want to go back, you know, to the old sort of liturgy, the old rites. And he is either persuaded or browbeaten by them into doing so, and this leads to great sort of popular celebrations in the village. People are delighted, and when news begins to spread that this has happened, the surrounding villagers also sort of rejoice and say that they too want nothing to do with this new book and to go back to their old, um, you know, the traditional sort of worship of their forefathers, as they saw it.
3: As a bit of context, we've said about the fact that Protestantism was on the rise, but how strong was? the old traditions of Catholicism still felt in the country and particularly in areas such as Devon and
2: Cornwall? Yeah I mean it's a really good question because I think one of the reasons I got so interested in this protest is that the sort of the traditional view of of English history if you like is that the Catholic Church was sort of weak, feeble, corrupt, this sort of brave new Protestant Church came in and everyone welcomed it. That's sort of part of almost the English myth I suppose of ourselves but in reality a lot of recent work by all sorts of brilliant scholars over the last 20 or 30 years has shown that that isn't really true and that lots of people are extremely attached to the old faith um that you know it was part of it was central to their life they didn't see it as something that was on its way out it was failing and they were bitterly opposed to this new faith that was coming in and i think that was particularly true uh in certain parts of the country certainly true in the north of england certainly true in wales and certainly true in devon and cornwall there are very few um actual proto-Protestants or pre-Protestants in the West Country in the 1540s. It's actually one of the most religiously conservative parts of the whole kingdom. So that's one of the reasons I think that the anger is felt so strongly here when these new changes are brought in so swiftly.
3: Do we know what the ordinary people thought of Henry's changes?
2: Yeah I mean we don't know as much as we'd like to because obviously Henry VIII was quite a terrifying figure and when he begins to make these changes People are obviously very unwilling to um, put their heads above the parapet, if you like. But it is interesting um, that there are several examples in the West Country of of clear disobedience to Henry being voiced. Um, There's one example in in, in Cornwall, in the far west of Cornwall, when uh, a local couple of fishermen actually seem to be um, very interested in what's happening in the north of England, where there's the big protest, the Pilgrimage of Grace, and seem to have been... uh, Thinking about trying to engineer something similar in Cornwall, that's put down very quickly indeed. Equally interesting is the fact um, that in Exeter, which is the, the main city in the southwest, there's actual physical resistance offered to Henry's dissolution of the monasteries, which is very, very rare. And what makes this particularly intriguing from my point of view is that that resistance is offered by a group of local women. So in the city at this time, um, there is a, a sort of a, a monastic building called St. Nicholas Priory, um, and the town authorities um, at the order of the government have sent craftsmen in to sort of um, take down, you know, some of the religious imagery in the church. And as this is going on, um, a group of local women charge into the church when they hear that this is taking place. Um, they attack the workmen who flee. Um, they barricade themselves in the tower, the workmen. The women sort of bash their way in um, to get them. And the the artisans who are carrying out this, this destruction are actually forced to sort of chuck themselves out of the window in order to escape. Having done this, the women then barricade themselves in the church and with pikes and spikes and with shovels, they prepare to defend the church against those who would seek to despoil it. Um, and eventually, um, the town authorities get word of this, um, they turn up. Um, they they demand that the women will go home. The women are extremely intransigent um, and threaten to sort of attack them. But eventually, they do manage to sort of to winkle them out of this position, and the work of destruction continues. But I think this is highly significant. It shows that women are just as upset, uh, local women are just as upset as local men were about what was happening, and that some of them are actually brave enough to defend their churches against Henry's onslaught, despite, you know, the terrifying punishments that that might have been meted out to them. And again, I think that's just a straw in the wind of just how strong religious conservatism is in the West Country, and how it's shared really throughout the whole community. Um, and, And I think it also just flags up that when we think of the Western Rebellion, We think of the protesters, the rebels, as men, but we know that there were actually quite large numbers of women who marched alongside the rebels. We know virtually nothing about their stories, uh, but I think it's really important to stress that, you know, women were backing these protests just as much as men were. And it's very much um, most of the local community uniting against Edward's religious changes in 1549.
3: I think one of the things you talk about in your feature for BBC History magazine and within your book is the fact that Cornwall was particularly riled up about this. Why exactly was that?
2: Well Cornwall is a, is a really interesting sort of society almost of its own. I mean I've mentioned Wales already. So Wales in the Tudor period is almost completely Welsh speaking. Protestantism is a, a religion of the word. It tends to be produ- you know to be propagated and spread through preaching and the printed word. And of course Wales in many ways is kind of insulated from that, which is one of the reasons it stays so traditional for so long. Cornwall in a way is a similar case. It, it's more complicated. But in Cornwall, um, there was a very sort of separate culture, a sort of an old Celtic culture, if I can use that term. At least, well, we think probably about half of the Cornish population at the beginning of the Tudor period still spoke Cornish. And they regarded themselves, you know, still as as very different to their English neighbours. So the imposition of this new faith in English, and particularly the imposition of a prayer book in English upon the Cornish, by sweeping away the old Latin Mass... It becomes obvious that English is going to be imposed upon them almost by force. And one of the things that's always intrigued me about this protest is that at the height of the trouble in the West Country, the rebels send up um, a list of sort of grievances or demands to the government. And amongst them is one that states that we, the Cornish, many of whom do not speak English, utterly reject this new English. So there's a kind of cultural dimension to this as well. I would regard the protests as mainly running along religious lines, but in Cornwall, there is this sort of angle of cultural defensiveness, if you like, as well.
3: So the element of cultural defiance as well as religious defiance?
2: Absolutely. Because in some ways, I think the traditional Catholic Church had always been very accommodating of Cornish culture. Um, obviously, most of what happens in the church takes place in, in Latin. Um, but you know, that's, that's not being sort of forced on the Cornish people. Whereas once that goes and English is then sort of, um, inserted into every church service, that means that Every time that the people in any part of Cornwall go to church once a week, they will be sort of forced then to have English, if you like, thrust down their throats. So in that way, um, the traditional church, I think, had been much more friendly. I think they would have seen it as much more friendly to this sort of separate sense of Cornish identity and culture.
3: One of the things you mentioned was about the voices of the Cornish people, particularly their motivations and what they want how often do we actually hear the voice of the
2: rebels in this story? Well, again, I mean, that's one of the things that's always intrigued me about this rebellion. Um, it's often been described by historians as, as very mysterious because we have so little evidence. Almost all the evidence we have is actually from the government side. It's what the government said, what the loyalists said. Um, almost all we have from the protesters or the rebels is the lists of articles which they sent up to the government. And there's a series of those some of which have survived intact and others of which we only know about from the government's response to them. And it's from that really, that handful of documents that we need to try and work out exactly what the protesters were thinking about, what they thought they were doing. And I think one of the things that's made me so fascinated about this particular episode is it's so tantalising that we know so little about it. And even a tiny fragment of information can really sort of help to advance our knowledge of it. Because We have so little about what was going on that every new scrap is precious. And one of the things that I really enjoyed over the last 10 or 15 years is just occasionally turning up, you know, one or two of these nuggets that sort of change the way that we see the whole thing.
3: Could you tell us what have some of your favourite nuggets of these been?
2: Well, I mean, some of them have been to do really with the violence of the repression. I mean, we've always known, I mean, I'm sort of jumping ahead of the story a bit. I mean, I'm afraid this might act as a bit of a spoiler, but the rebels don't triumph in the end. They are defeated. And we've always known that, um, you know, the the suppression was very bloody. Huge numbers of, of rebels are killed in the fighting. But then afterwards, there's also, um, you know, martial law is declared across the West Country. And there are many executions. Um, One of the things that I've been excited to find is actual evidence of these. So I came across um, a document from Exeter, for example, um, which has a very sort of grim entry in it about um, a payment made for the erection of the first set of gallows after the rebels are defeated. And then in Plymouth, um, came across a document which has um, uh, a list of payments made to a group of carpenters for setting up what was obviously a very elaborate gallows, very fast indeed, just after the rebellion's been suppressed. That's obviously to hang lots of people. Um, also, although there's not much evidence about this, it's fairly evident there was a lot of, um, how can I put it, brutality Um, sort of torture um, in the wake of the rebellion. Um, I came across a horrible story in the public uh, record office or the National Archives as it is now um, about a poor chap who was accused of being involved in the rebellion. He denied it um, but he was taken, apprehended by a loyalist who then had him tortured in order to sort of make him agree to give up some of his possessions as a fine and this poor man had ropes tied around his hands so tightly that blood spurted out of the fingertips and then they tied a rope around his head and twisted a stick in it until... He felt his head was going to sort of explode. And then worst of all, they tied a rope around his genitals and twisted this rope in the same way until blood spurted out. And I mean, that's the sort of the real sort of horror of what was going on on the ground, which, to be honest, some of the loyalist sources don't tell us that much about, as you might expect. So, I mean, I, I think the, the sort of the wave of repression that swept over the West Country in the wake of this um, rising is, is something which I have found quite shocking at times.
3: I must apologise to listeners for jumping so far ahead so quickly. Now, I reckon then what we should do is we should dive back into the story from the start. So you mentioned about the first uprising in a local village. What happened from there?
2: Okay, so what happens next is essentially the... um you know, the villagers celebrate and they sort of gather outside the church, Quite probably a relatively small number at that time, perhaps only 100, 200 people. And a group of local justices of the peace or magistrates then ride out, they hear about this, and they ride out to, to do something about, um, you know, this um, act of defiance against the government. And so there's a kind of parlay then between these gentlemen and the, the heads of the protesters who are a very sort of, they're not at the bottom of the social scale, but they're not gentlemen. They're sort of yeoman farmer types, if you like. Um, and normally one would expect them to simply, you know, defer to what the gentleman had told them to do. But in fact, they they hold their ground. Um, the magistrates aren't able to persuade them to disperse. And in the end, um, the magistrates simply sort of turn tail and leave the village. So In the eyes of loyalists, this was sort of the fatal moment that gave the protesters confidence. And from that moment onwards, their numbers simply swell. More and more people come into the village uh, and join them. And a few days later, they actually begin to move, in very large numbers, these protesters, by now from really the whole of north and central Devon um, on the regional capital of Exeter. And as the disturbances spread... um, A lot of gentlemen just go to ground. Um, Some of them feel we're going to have to try and sort of disperse this, um, you know, in another way. And eventually, a few days after the sort of the initial rising there's an actual armed confrontation at the little market town of Crediton which is actually where I went to school which is hence part of my interest in this and unfortunately there is a there is a fracas blood is spilt and the loyalist forces which are essentially uh, a number of gentlemen and their retainers they drive the protesters out of the town and they burn down several barns and possibly several houses, and a small number of the protesters are actually killed. Now, this is really the point at which things move from protest to armed confrontation and there's a huge sort of explosion of anger then across the whole countryside thousands well certainly hundreds more people rise up in arms um, and essentially the gentlemen have sort of stirred up a hornet's nest um, through this encounter um, they suddenly realize that um, you know masses of people are now sort of you know disturbed all over the countryside um, and at this point the gentry seem to sort of fragment their unity fragments um, Some of them actually simply go home. Um, Some of them leave Exeter because they realise that Exeter itself will soon be placed in a really difficult position. And then a few days later, um, the city is completely surrounded and a large group of protesters march upon the city, by now in arms with captains, and actually lay siege to it. So at this point, Exeter, which is obviously the regional capital of the West Country, the fifth biggest city in England at this time, is now completely surrounded by rebel forces.
3: Do we get any insight at all into what it must have been like in Exeter at this time?
2: Yes, we do. I mean, one of the things that's um, so interesting about this particular event is that almost everything we know about it, or an awful lot of what we know about it, is written by an Exeter man named John Hooker. Now, John Hooker was not typical. He's extremely well-educated, and he was also very Protestant. So he was one of the few early Protestants, you know, in the West Country. And it's his account. He wrote... Um, The only um, sort of primary contemporary account of the rebellion, Um, he wrote various different versions of it, but it's very much the view of the man on the Exeter city walls. It's very much a loyalist view. And Hooker does give us a wonderful picture of what it was like in the city. Um, They suddenly found themselves cut off. Um, Many of the citizens were actually in sympathy with the rebels, but the town governors decided to hold the city against them. I think there are various reasons for that partly just fear if they let the protesters in, you know, would there be sort of plunder and pillage in Exeter, but also probably fear what would happen, you know, if they join the rebels and are then defeated. So the the citizens resolve to hold out against the rebels, but at the same time there are many inhabitants of Exeter who would love to welcome their neighbours in, so it's a divided city. So the sort of, the idea of on, on the one hand you've got these enemies outside but you've also got enemies inside. It's a very sort of vulnerable position. Um, and Hooker's account is a wonderful account. I mean, we would not be without it because it's so immediate. And he describes how, you know, the town governors fortify the walls. Um, you know, they they get men in arms and they prepare to defend themselves. And actually, as a as a teenager, um, I was actually an archaeologist in Exeter, and I spent some of my time walk, working on the city walls that were defended at the time. So again. That's another thing that's always made me so intrigued about this rebellion. It's almost followed me around all my life.